Hebrews chapter number 12 tonight. I'd like to read the first three verses, and then we'll uh, say a word about what this chapter encompasses. The Bible says in verse number 1 of chapter 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. For the last two weeks, we have studied the topic and idea of the walk of faith. Uh, the last four, or excuse me, the last three chapters in the book of Hebrews encompass three elements of the Christian walk or the Christian experience or Christian reality, however you want to describe it, that come as a consequence of this great treatise on Christ as being better uh, than the Old Testament law. Uh, faith, of course, has always been the means whereby men have approached unto God. The Bible says, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So cross-dispensationally, it's always been faith has been the means whereby men came to God. In chapter number 11, uh, the walk of faith is emphasized, and we are taken on a tour, sort of, so to speak, throughout the Old Testament in seeing how faith engaged in the lives of those that knew God all through Old Testament times. Well, chapter number 12 moves to uh, something very akin, very similar to faith, and that is the idea of hope. And the title for the lesson tonight is The Wisdom of Hope. Now, when we talk about hope, I'll go ahead and admit to you that hope in today's vernacular is sort of an anemic word, you know. We think of hope like, you know, if you were to say, well, you know, is it going to quit raining? Well, I hope so, you know. Uh, well, you know, uh, is everything going to turn out well? Well, I, you know, I hope so. And that is often how we use this term. But when we draw hope over into another category, when we look at it in negative relief, meaning against the backdrop of negative circumstances, then all of a sudden hope becomes a very potent word. For instance, if you were sitting in a doctor's office and the doctor came in to give you a prognosis and uh, said that you had a tumor, I got a call today from uh, somebody whose uh, son was diagnosed with a major uh, brain tumor in the frontal lobe, is laying down at the hospital right now, and they don't know what the prognosis will be. I promise you that family would love nothing more than to have a doctor walk in and say, well, now it looks bad, but there is Hope. There is hope. By the same token, if a prisoner was uh, sitting there and uh, they had exhausted all of their appeals and they were one final time waiting uh, to hear the judge's sentence, then uh, if their lawyer looked at him and said, you know, there is hope that this will change, then hope becomes a very potent thing. On the converse side, if the doctor walked in and said, I'm sorry, but it's hopeless, well, then all of a sudden we value hope. If uh, the judge looked down and said, your case is hopeless, then all of a sudden we understand that hope has a value intrinsic to us. So if we want to define hope in a biblical way, I think the best thing to do is to lay it beside the idea of faith. And I began to think about different ways we might try to explain it. And if I could say it this way, that if, uh, if faith is the activity of our belief, faith is the activity of our belief, then we might say that hope is the emotional aspect of our belief. 
In other words, we might say that if faith is what we see on the outside through a person's actions and behavior, for instance, the way that God himself defines it in chapter 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for. If we think of belief as a commodity and lay beside it hope and faith, faith is the outward, hope is the inward. Faith deals on an actionable level. Hope deals on an emotional level. Or we might say it this way, that when we talk about belief and the way it affects our life, faith is the substance, but hope is the essence of what that belief is. In other words, it's what drives us and gives us the emotional strength to meet the day's challenges. Now, there's something to be said for the idea of hope. And when we consider hope in the scope of the believer's life, the Bible talks about the blessed hope and talks about Abraham, how against hope he believed in hope. We find that hope is a very powerful thing. In other words, how do we entertain the Word of God within our very spirit and being? Now, the lesson tonight breaks itself up into two large categories. The first, we have an exhortation to run the heavenly race in the first 13 verses. And then from uh, verse number 14 down to verse 29, we have an exhortation to rest in the heavenly grace. I would remind you that from verse 15 down to the end of the chapter is the very last in our parenthetical warning passages. You remember we spent some time at length describing those parenthetical passages, meaning that at verse 15 there's a break from the stream of logic to instead engage in another idea that will support and will uh, sort of complement the overall trajectory of thought that's laid before us. But I want us to first consider these first 13 verses, running the heavenly race. In other words, living our Christian life victoriously. I want to share this with you just very quickly, and I probably don't have time to, but I'm going to anyway. Um, and we'll just make up time later. You know, that's, that's what you do on the road, right? When you're running late, you just make up the time. Run red lights and things like that. But um, <laughs> I was telling my Sunday school class the other day, we've been studying through the book of Romans, <clears throat> And we right now are in Romans chapter number 8. And the theme of Romans chapter 8 is it is a manual, it is a, an instruction book on how to live victoriously in the Christian walk. And there is sort of two ideas about the Christian walk. Of course, there is the delusional idea that we can live perfectly and sinlessly. Uh, and, I mean, that doesn't even speak to the reality of our everyday life. We know we sin. We know we make mistakes. And Paul himself described this. He said, not as though I were already perfect in the book of Philippians, either it already attained. So, you know, the idea that we're going to live perfect, that's out the window. But then there's sort of a defeatist attitude beyond that. And no one says, I'm a failure at being a Christian, so I'm not going to try. But here's what we do. We live any old way we want, and then we turn around and say, well, thank the Lord for grace. It's okay. I'm, I'm forgiven. It's all right. Well, listen, you are forgiven by the grace of God. If you're forgiven at all, you're forgiven by the grace of God. And I'm thankful that uh, where, you know, there's remission of these, there's no more need for sacrifice, that our sins and iniquities he'll remember no more. But that doesn't mean we can't live victoriously. We'll never be perfect on this side of the grave, but we can have victory. And the illustration I drew for my class was this. When you look at a military endeavor, victory is defined by two things, achieving a goal and minimizing casualties. You go into war with the idea that there's not going to be any casualties, uh, you're, you're deluded, right? Well, if you go into the Christian walk thinking, I'm never going to make a mistake, you're deluded. You're, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to mess up. But by the same token, if you view it in the military terms that we do the military excursions of the world, if we say, okay, here's what victory is. Victory, the goal is to become like Christ, more like Christ than I am today. And the goal is to minimize casualties, meaning to minimize my mistakes, 
If that's what we consider to be a victory, well, that's achievable. That's attainable. We're not going to be perfect, but that doesn't mean we have to be pagans. Amen? And uh, listen, we're not going to look exactly like Jesus on this side of glory, but that don't mean we can't look more like him tomorrow than we did yesterday. And so we can live victoriously. And to do this, uh, the Hebrews writer gives us two things that are going to be required. First, we see a call to self-discipline. There's two types of discipline needed for this race, self-discipline and spiritual discipline. With self-discipline, in the first three verses, I want you to notice a few things. And I've changed a few words from our notes, but I believe you'll be able to follow along. Where he says the stand, I want you to think of this term, the stadium, is set forth in the first part of chapter number 1. The Bible says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't come to fuss tonight, and I have no interest in it. I'm going to tell you something that's very, very unpopular, and I promise you there's people in this room that would disagree with me. I don't think that great cloud of witnesses is your mamma and papa. I don't believe that. I don't believe it's your mamma and papa. I don't believe it's your dog Spot. I don't believe it is your cousin or your Aunt Mamie or whoever it might be. I don't believe they're sitting up in heaven looking down like a big fishbowl watching what we're doing. I believe every time you see heaven in the Bible, they're not looking down. They're looking up at him. And they're seated at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him and enjoying his presence and glory. Now, how much they are aware of, I, I do not know. It's evident they're aware of some things on earth. We see that in the book of Revelation, but I don't think they're occupied sitting watching us. I'll tell you something else I don't believe. I don't believe that the Old Testament saints are sitting around watching us either. Uh, that's another belief, is that people say all those people mentioned in chapter 11, in fact, the commentator, my favorite commentator I've liked to read and study throughout this series believes that, and I believe he's wrong. I don't believe Abraham and Isaac are sitting around watching you and me. I believe that we can see plainly from the text that it says, seeing we also... So evidently, we have the same cloud of witnesses that those in chapter 11 had. Now, what is that cloud of witnesses? Well, that's the world around them. You remember it says in chapter 11, of whom the world was not worthy. The world was watching and observing their behavior in the same way the world is watching you and I to see how we live and to see how we'll behave. Then notice the struggle is mentioned in the next few verse, or next few phrases. The Bible says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So the first thing we need to do is we need to do away with all impediments. He says, let us lay aside the weight. Now, of course, in the analogy of a runner, a weight is not something that's necessarily viewed as something impure or ungodly or profane. But most of the time in running, it is anything that impedes you from running the race effectively. Uh, and I've heard preachers throughout the years make this all kinds of things. I, I've heard them make it all the way from dresses to well, you know, wire rim glasses to white shirts to everything that it could be. I think you can waste a lot of time trying to do the Holy Ghost job to go in and uh, deal with people about things God hadn't dealt with them about. But I will say this, that there are things in our life that are not intrinsically wrong or bad, but they hinder us. Sometimes, and we see this with the people that Christ called to discipleship, sometimes it was their family. You remember he told them, he said, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to hate your father and your mother. Now, the Lord is not exhorting anyone to bear malcon or Ill, content, Ill, Ill intent in their heart towards uh, part of their family. But what he is saying is that comparatively speaking, you ought to so love me that comparatively speaking, the love for your family looks like hate. By the same token, houses and lands are mentioned as something that can hold people back. You remember there was a man that came and said, hey, listen, I've got to go and sell a piece of land, and uh, then I can come and follow you. And uh, he says, listen, just uh, take up your cross and follow me. Lay up treasures in heaven. 
Another fellow said, I gotta wait and I gotta bury my father. That was family responsibility. He said, let the dead bury their dead, uh, but follow me. So anything in life that is impeding us from living for Christ, we need to view as something that's a hindrance. And then he says, away with all impatience. He says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. One of the things that becomes abundantly clear the further you get in life is that life is not a hundred yard dash, it is a marathon. Uh, we need to learn patience, patience. We need to learn patience with ourselves, patience with others, and patience with God's plan. Uh, listen, God has the clock that matters. We don't. And if we'll follow him and yield and submit unto him, he'll do everything right on time. Then notice the strategy in verses 2 and 3. Uh, the Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. We're going to do exactly what the Bible said here. When the Bible says consider him, that literally means to reckon up, to take an inventory of Christ's life and what he did. So as we look at Jesus and the way he ran the race that God set before him, I think we can have the right perspective on how we are to run the race. Uh, listen, we don't run the race because we love the race. We don't run the race for the crown that comes at the end. We run the race for the person that, that deserves our effort and energy and our running, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The term looking there is interesting. It means to look away from everything and look to that which your heart is fixed upon has the idea of abandon. And what it's saying is, listen, quit looking at everyone and everything else and look at Jesus. That's how you run the race with patience. There are three things that are mentioned here. Number one, his person. The Bible says he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one that mapped the course. He's been down the course, and not only has he been down the course, but he has completed the course. We can look unto him because we know he's not just the author, but he's the finisher of our faith. How many times have been somebody you've looked up to in life that has not finished the race? They've given out. They've quit living for God. They've quit walking for God. We never have to worry about that with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. Then we see his passion is mentioned. Or maybe we might say his perseverance. The Bible says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Now stop and think about that. When a person's getting ready to run the I know very few people that get ready to run a marathon and are excited about the running part of the marathon. I was talking to someone the other day, and uh, we were talking about those Fitbits that you wear around your wrist. I guess I was preaching on this in a sermon, and uh, it tracks how many steps you walk. Hey, listen, that don't impress me. I can get in my car and drive for miles at a time without even breaking a sweat, all right? That don't impress me. You know, that's no big deal. That's what we got cars for, right? I'm not somebody that enjoys walking. If I walk, it's utilitarian. I walk because I'm at point A, and I want to be at point B, and that's how I'm going to get there. The Lord Jesus, he did not enjoy the cross. He endured the cross. But he did look forward to the joy that was set before him. Uh, the Lord Jesus was not a sadist. He did not enjoy the experience of the cross, but he endured it knowing what would result from it. He despised the shame. He didn't like what happened in the sense of, of enjoying it in comfort and in ease, but he did it because it was the will of the Father, and he knew what his plan and God's plan was in it all. Now, what a perfect example it is to us. Listen, we think if we have to experience a moment of discomfort, then, oh my, we're victims, we need to quit, we need to lay down, we need to give out. Here's the stark reality of it. You are not here for your comfort, you are here for your consecration. 
you are not here for your enjoyment. You're here for the glory of God. That's why you're here. That's why you walk this earth. And that doesn't mean God doesn't want us to have joy. It doesn't mean he doesn't want us to enjoy life. But it means that our enjoyment of life is not the preeminent thing. The glory of God is. So we see in this passage his passion is mentioned. He endured. But then notice his position. I like this. Uh, you say, preacher, my loved ones aren't looking down on me. My, my dog Spot is not looking down on me. Those Old Testament uh, prophets are not looking down on me. Then who is looking down on me? Well, I'll tell you somebody who is. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And his eyes run to and fro through the earth. He beholds everything, the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is seated. You can see him there, can't you, in your mind? I know we can't fix ourselves on the details that we don't know, but we can see him seated on the right hand of the throne of God. He's finished the race. He's been crowned. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And there he sits, ever beholding those that love him and serve him, and exhorting them on in this walk and race that we're running. So we see the struggle. We see the strategy. But then I want you to notice not only a call to self-discipline, but a call to spiritual discipline in verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, "...ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin." And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Now, somebody might wonder, preacher, what's being talked about here in verse number four when it says ye have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin? Well, can I give you an illustration from my childhood? I remember from time to time I used to get whippings. I know that's hard to believe. I know you like to believe that I was a perfect saintly child that never did anything wrong. But every once in a while, I would do something that would warrant discipline. And I remember my dad saying things like this. Oh, you ain't hurt. Right? Did you ever hear that growing up? Oh, you ain't hurt. You're all right. You're okay. This is God's way of saying, oh, you ain't hurt. Hey, listen, you've not, you've not resisted unto blood. Now, I don't know about you, but for any amount of lying on and persecution I've experienced and gossiping I've experienced, I've not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. We don't have anything to complain about. We've not had to pay, I mean, even a thousandth of what generations before us have had to pay for their stand for Christ. We've not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. And he says, listen, there's something you have forgotten in verses 5 and 6. He says, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Now, the Hebrew writer goes back to Proverbs chapter 3 to give us this quotation. Verses 11 and 12 is what he's quoting. And he tells us something about chastening that we need to understand. He said, It speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. In other words, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. In other words, the struggles of life are a natural product of being a child of God. God chastens us because he loves us. And we'll get into some of that here in just a moment. But he reminds them that chastening is a natural part of life. And he tells them that as a result of that, there's three ways they need to take this. Number one, he says, you need to take it soberly. He says, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. In other words, we need to take it seriously when God is chastening us in our lives. We don't need to be flipping about it. We don't need to play the victim about it. How often do we try to do that? We sit over in the corner with our blankie and our pacifier and talk about how rough life is on us. And sometimes we'll say, you know, rarely will a Christian say God's being unfair to me. Maybe occasionally. But most of the time we'll say things like this. Well, they're treating me bad. 
Well, listen, is God on his throne or is he not on his throne? Is God bigger than your adversaries or is he not bigger than your adversaries? And listen, I mean this in the kindest terms possible. I used to hear it a lot and I bet you did too. Dry it up. Dry it up. God's on his throne. You're a child of God, saved by the grace of God, washed in the blood of God, sealed by the Spirit of God, upheld by the Word of God and the promise of God. you got nothing to gripe about, neither do I. God's been good to us. And when God chastens us, it's not out of meanness or unkindness, but He does so out of love. I, I was hearing a quote. Uh, some of you all may remember the old uh, movie back from the 40s, How Green Was My Valley. And there's a story that's told about the main protagonist that... Uh, Whenever he's in school, he was caught fighting with some boys, and the schoolmaster took and uh, laid him out on a desk to to whip him and to flog him. And uh, he took that stick that they used and began to flog him. And every time he hit him, he'd hit him harder and harder and harder. And finally, the stick broke and flew to the side. And he said, that'll teach you to never do that anymore. And he said that the protagonist looked over at a little girl that was standing over to the side watching the beating, and she had a handkerchief in her hand that she had torn to shreds because she was so broken by the beating that that boy was taking. We like to think of God as the schoolmaster that's taking pleasure and joy in our chastening. But really, God's more like that girl that stands over to the side with his heart broken when we're being chastened. God takes it seriously when he chastens us. We need to take it seriously. But then he says we need to take it sensibly. He says, nor, or, or, I'm sorry, not sensibly, but we need to uh, take it in strength. He says, uh, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. In other words, we need to bear up under God's chastening. We don't need to bow up, but we need to bear up under God's chastening. Don't let it break us, because God's not going to do it in a way that it would break us if we'll lean on Him. And then we need to take it spiritually, for whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom He receiveth. He says a word, not just an explanation in verse 4 and an exhortation in verses 5 and 6, but He gives us the expectation of chastening. In other words, what does chastening tell us? Verse 7, it says, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. So there's two things we learn from chastening. We learn that uh, chastening is evidence that a person is a son and not a sinner, meaning that they are a child of God. The absence of chastening in a person's life, and we preached a little bit about this on Sunday night out of Romans chapter number 8, and, uh, you know, kind of marks that a person is born again. One of them is they can't be comfortable in sin. God will chasten them when they live in sin. The Bible says if you're without chastisement, you're not a son, you're a bastard, meaning you're illegitimate. Uh, For God to not chasten you would be a mark of your illegitimacy. For God to not chasten you would be a way of Him trying to imply you're not His, and God won't do that to any child of His own. Uh, There's been times when uh, I've been going through a grocery store, and you probably have too, uh, where you've looked around and you've seen some kids just going crazy. You ever been to a grocery store and kids just going wild? I'm talking about knocking stuff off and, you know, shoving grocery carts and doing backflips and just doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And you uh, (coughs) thought to yourself, whose kids are those? Right? Does it ever dawn on you? Their mom was probably standing in that group looking around going, yeah, whose kids are those? I'm going to try that next time. It's mine doing that. How should she take ownership of those children? She should take them and discipline them. I don't grab other people's kids and whip them. Them days has passed. Somebody say amen to that. You can get arrested for whipping your own kids nowadays, let alone somebody else's. 
Traditionally speaking, you don't whip someone else's child. Why? Because they're not your child. It's up to the parent to take that ownership. Well, in the same way, God chastens us as a sign and symbol of our relationship with him. We see an example in verses 9 and 10. We see the lesson that we have drawn from human chastening. The Bible says, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. We gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? So what's he saying if we boil that down? He's saying chastening is natural and chastening is effective. We had fathers in our flesh that chastened us, and we were subject unto them. Uh, that is a natural principle of life. Chastening brings about results. I know that people like to write all these books today about how you need to talk to your kids, and you need to bribe your kids, and you need to be sweet to your kids. And I found this to be true, that it's harder to be kind to my child when there's no discipline in his life. He doesn't receive my kindness. So I have a choice. He can either not receive my discipline and not receive my kindness, or he can receive my discipline and also receive my kindness. See, these things go hand in hand. We see the lesson from human chastening. Verse 10, we see the limitation of human chastening. Here's the problem, though, with human chastening. The Bible says, For they verily after a few day, or for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his, own, of his holiness. In other words, human parents make mistakes. Now, ideally, a parent ought to always chasten a child because it is uh, coercive to good behavior, if we want to say it that way. Uh, chastening should never be uh, retributionary in nature. In other words, you ought not whip your kids to make them pay, and you ought not whip your kids because you're mad at them. Really, if you want me to define what abuse is, I don't see abuse as being defined by how big the belt is. I see abuse being defined by what the motives of the parents are. And I see so many parents so oftentimes whip kids, not because their child did something wrong, but because they got on their nerves. I think that's abusive. Not necessarily physically abusive, but I believe it's emotionally abusive. Because it doesn't teach that child what right from wrong is. It teaches them where mom and daddy's line is. And that's not effective. It's not helpful in life. And it doesn't uh, bespeak where, what the, the biblical principles are of what's right and what's wrong. But the reality is human parents make mistakes. Sometimes you'll, you'll whip when you shouldn't have, need to whip. Sometimes you won't when you should. Sometimes you'll whip not understand everything that's going on. That's just the nature of life. But God's not that way. God never whips us in an inordinate manner or in an inappropriate manner. He always does it with the right motives, and he always does it in the right measure. So we see the example, but then notice the experience, the change to be considered, verse 11. Uh, now, some of y'all give a hearty amen to this. You can testify to this. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. That's a reality of life. Kids don't enjoy discipline. Nobody enjoys discipline. You ain't happy when you see those red and blue lights come on your rearview mirror. Nobody is. All right? Chasing, no chasing for the present time seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Back uh, two years ago, I think it was, I, I got a ticket, speeding ticket. I was driving down there doing construction out where I live, and uh, I decided one day, I want, any of y'all ever drink cream soda? You know what cream soda is? I'm not a real big fan of it, but man, for whatever reason, I got a hankering for it one day, and Leah was out doing stuff, and I had little man with me, and I, I looked at him, I, he's just a little bitty at that time, I mean, you know, just, uh, I, I guess, I don't know, he's about to turn four, so he's about, you know, two or so. I said, you want to go with Daddy and get a cream soda? He said, yeah. And so we jumped in the truck and started down the road. It was on Saturday. And I was going through that construction zone. I wasn't going fast necessarily, but it was a construction zone. Nobody was out there working. Wasn't nobody in danger. There was nobody on the job to that day. 
except one of Tennessee's finest state troopers. He was on the job that day. And so I, I went by doing what is the speed limit now and had been the speed limit before the construct. Well, I'm making an excuse now. But anyway, he pulled me over and gave me a ticket. And I was mad about it. And I was in the flesh about it. And I was thinking about all these reasons why we don't need them state troopers and their highway bandits and they don't do nothing. They don't do no police real, real police work. They just collect taxes for the, you know, state and all that stuff. But I'll tell you something I found. Every time I go down through that road, I check my speedometer. Wasn't joyous at that time, but it slowed me down. Chastening is not joyous at the moment. It's grievous. But it does yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Sometimes in my house, when we're disciplining my child, we call it an attitude adjustment. Because it does have a miraculous ability to do that. They can have the rottenest attitude in just a few moments of, uh, of loving, patient attention, carefully, deliberately applied, can fix that attitude. And all of a sudden, they're as sweet as a little lamb. That's because chastening yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness unto them, which are exercised thereby. They don't live under the cloud of knowing that they did something wrong and waiting for judgment to come. They can live in the freedom and liberty of knowing they're walking in accord with their Father. And it's true in our lives as well. So there's a change to be considered, and then there's a challenge to be considered, verse 12 and 13. So what do we do in result, in response to that, okay? Life is tough. God chastens us. We come into hard times. We come into difficulty. What do we do? Well, number one, we're to be strong. The Bible says, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. It, you've seen kids do this before. It's funny. I, you've seen kids get disciplined, and all of a sudden, oh, man, they're broken. You know, half the time they just got, you know, two, three little pats or whatever it might be, and they just melt, right? <laughs> they can't move, and they're in such pain. They're waiting for somebody to come with a stretcher and pick them up. We do that, too. Spiritually speaking, we do that. Uh, God deals with us a little heavy-handed, and, oh, life's so tough. You know, listen, God's a compassionate God, and God empathizes. But his empathy gives him authority to tell us to get over it and to get up and to go on. Because he feels everything we feel. And this exhortation that's given to you and me, it's given not out of a, a, a dull sense of, of, of no compassion, but out of, in, in the full brightness of God's eternal empathy. Knowing exactly what we go through, exactly what we feel, exactly how tough it is, exactly how hard the road is. He says, wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. In other words, go on. Don't give up. Go on. Be strong. And then he says, be straight. He says, and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. God's desire is not to have to bankrupt us of things in life to get our attention. God's chastening, we might say, is incremental, and it is intentional. When God chastens us, he doesn't do it out of measure. But... We do need to understand that if we persist in our rebellion against God, there might be some things that are lame that have to be amputated in order to help us to move on. There might be some things that have to be got rid of to speed our walk and our progress. In other words, when God chastens us, we ought to respond in obedience. We ought not get mad. We ought not bow up. We ought not lay down. We ought not quit. We need to dry it up, shape up, and we need to walk straight. Because that's what God's trying to do in our life. And God's desire is not that he keep chastening us. God's desire is that we repent and submit so that we can go on in the grace and love of God. So we see in this passage that we are to run the heavenly race. And then we come into 
this warning passage. We need to rest in the heavenly grace. In verse number 14, we have a stringent command that is given. The Bible says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now, this verse uh, serves sort of as a, a prelude to an entire discourse about why we need to do what verse number 14 says. But first, I want you to notice the need for a holy life is declared. And your notes say the delights of following this path, but I've changed that in mine, and you don't have to in yours, but I changed mine to say the demands of following in this path. There's two things that are mentioned. We are to live in harmony with man as much as possible. Follow peace with all men. Paul said it this way, and I believe the book of Romans, he said, as much as in us lies, let us live peaceably with all men. In other words, as believers, we ought not be uh, constantly looking for a fight. We ought not be caustic and antagonistic in the way that we live. And I promise you this, there's a lot of people that make persecution for themselves. But if you'll live godly in Christ Jesus, you'll suffer persecution. We need to follow peace with all men. We need to understand that the way we treat others affects our relationship with God, our communion with Him. And we need to understand that we need to do everything we can to follow peace and live peaceably. And then there's a second thing. We need to live in holiness before God. So we follow not just peace with all men, but beside that, and we might even say before that, we follow holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Now listen, if we have a choice between the two, we always follow holiness before we follow peace with all men. The reality is this. Were it not for the premise and idea of holiness, meaning upholding God's standard of righteousness, we could follow peace with a lot more men. But if we have to make a choice between following peace and obeying God, then the book of Acts makes it clear that we ought rather to obey God than man. So inasmuch as these two things run side by side, then we ought to do both. But if there comes a place where they deviate, where we must choose a path, we're to follow after Holiness. When we talk about holiness, we're talking about God's appreciation of what's right. That's what holiness is. God's standard of what is right. When we talk about righteousness, we're talking about holiness in action. When we talk about holiness, we're talking about the very idea and essence and premise of what is right in the eyes of God. In other words, we ought to live our life concerned about what God thinks is right. This is a lost ideal in the day that we live in. It's not only uh, will you never hear this talked about in the secular realm, but rarely will you hear the word holiness mentioned from the pulpit. We ought to care about what God thinks. Now, I know that seems elementary, but if you really begin to think about the way we live our lives, and even oftentimes the way that churches are, you'll find that it's not quite as in vogue and in fashion and fundamental to our ideals of living as we'd like to think. So oftentimes we're concerned about what people are going to think, what folks that come into our church are going to think, or what somebody that's visiting might think, or what the members of the church might think, or what our neighbors might think, maybe what our family might think, or maybe if we have some friends what they'll think, or the coworkers what they think. And very rarely do we stop before we do something and say, what would God's opinion of this be? God's primary chief command in this race that we're running is that we follow holiness. Now, I want you to notice, then we have a word about the dangers of falling from this path. So we have the demands of following in this path, and then the dangers of falling from this path. The Bible says in verse 15, "...looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, 
lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, don't make your Bible say something it doesn't. It doesn't say, lest the grace of God fail any man. Because the grace of God will never fail any man. It says, lest we fail the grace of God. There's a difference, isn't there? If two people stand at an altar and make uh, a commitment one to another and enter into the marriage covenants, and if one person breaks that covenant and uh, enters into a relationship with someone outside of that marriage vow, then we don't look at the person that was faithful and say, boy, you messed up. We look at the person that stepped out and say, you failed your vows. In the same way, the grace of God will never fail us. Now, you say, preacher, why does that matter? Because people try to take this verse and make it mean we can lose our salvation. But you understand that my salvation is not something I did for God. It's something that God did for me. So this isn't talking about God failing me. It's talking about me failing the grace of God. And I certainly can fail the grace of God in my life when I don't walk in that grace. So we need to be careful what we do with this verse, and we need to define it biblically. Then notice the second thing, and in the notes he says it this way. He says the inference of such a fall, meaning uh, what we just described, that we're not talking about losing your salvation, but we're talking about not walking worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called. And then the influence of such a fall. In other words, and I, I rarely quote, uh, secular writers, but Hemingway did say it this way, that no man is an island unto himself. The Bible says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You are not an island unto yourself. Your behavior affects others. It will affect those around you. And we need to get it through our mind that how we live and what we do will touch the world that is around us. And to illustrate this, Esau is brought into the equation. Now, again, this is a passage of Scripture that I think oftentimes is mishandled, but I want us to handle it biblically. We see not only the uh, need for a holy life declared, but we see the need for a holy life demonstrated. And Esau is held up as an example of someone that pursued the earthly instead of the heavenly. Someone that did not follow after holiness. Instead, he followed after that which was sensual. And because of that, there was a root of bitterness that sprung up and many were defiled. We're going to explain that here in just a moment. But I want you to notice first off what Esau did in verse number 16. The Bible says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Now, we have no reason to believe that Esau ever committed adultery on uh, on his wife. Uh, it's not to say he didn't. He may have. I don't know. I've never read his diary, but uh, we don't have any biblical reason to believe that he did. So the profaneness and the fornication that's being spoken of here is not sensual fornication. It's spiritual fornication. In other words, it, it is not physical fornication, but it is a profane, meaning a secular fornication. And what Esau did, of course, and you know the story, Esau was the firstborn. Esau and Jacob, Esau as the firstborn had a right to the birthright. Now, the birthright involved three things primarily for a patriarch. One, it involved the priesthood. At the time of Esau and Jacob's living, uh, there was no priesthood of the, you know, of the Levites. There was no Levitical priesthood. There was no Aaron and his sons. There was no temple. There was no tabernacle. None of that. And yet men did sacrifice. Uh, men did uh, implore and entreat God on the behalf of their family and others that were close to them. And Job provides us a good example of the structure. The Bible says that Job gave sacrifices for his children. 
You'll find this to be the case all through the patriarchal age. That in the patriarchal age, the oldest living male, meaning the patriarch, was the priest over the family. In other words, Abraham uh, offered sacrifices for Isaac and, uh, and, and presumably for Esau and Jacob as well. And Isaac would have offered them for Jacob and, and Esau and, uh, and, and for uh, those of Jacob's sons that would have been born. And then Jacob would have offered them. So being the first, the oldest male in a family, part of the birthright implied that you were going to be the priest to go before God. There was another thing that was implied. It was the progenitorship, or we might even use the term privilege, because, spiritually speaking, the oldest in the family was going to be the one through whom the Messiah would have come. Yet all this changed with Esau and Jacob. With Esau and Jacob, you remember that Abraham, of course, was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Isaac, though he was not Abraham's firstborn, he was the first child of promise, the child of him and Sarah. And had it not been for Esau's decision and his fulfillment of what God had said, that the elder would serve the younger, had he not made the choice he made, then we have every reason to believe that the lineage of Christ would have gone through him. But when he forfeited the birthright, he forfeited this as well. Uh, this is the reason the Bible says that Judah is the one through whom, uh, you know, Christ came. Anyway, uh, we, we see that the progenitorship is something he would have forfeited. And then, of course, the prospective uh, property he would have received. He would have received a double portion. And what that means is that if you had, like, 12 kids, uh, we'll use Jacob as an example. Jacob had 12 kids. Uh, well, that, that first child would have received uh, his, his own portion. He would have received a twelfth. And then he would have received a part of everybody else's portion as well. He would have had the largest portion of wealth, and everybody else would have had the leftovers. In other words, everything related to this birthright was either spiritual or perspective or both. You know the story how that Esau comes in from uh, hunting out in the field and uh, Jacob is there and he's made a pottage and uh, Esau comes in and he says, oh, I'm about to faint, I'm about to die. I, uh, you know, if I don't have something to eat, I'm just going to kill over right now. And I felt like that before, amen. Some of y'all men know what I'm talking about. You come in, you ain't eating about three hours and it's rough. If you don't get something quick, you're just going to fade away. And uh, that's how Esau was. He, he came in. And uh, so he looked at Jacob. He says, give me some of that pottage that you made. Jacob says, I'll give it to you if you'll give me your birthright. Now, I don't think the idea is that had he not eaten of that pottage, he would have died. I think rather <coughs> the idea is this, that Esau looked at it and said, well, that, pottage, or that birthright ain't doing me any good right now. And he treated the things that God had spiritually structured in such a way to benefit and bless him. He treated them as, as profane, as meaningless as empty, and he sold his birthright for just a morsel of meat. And then notice what he discovered in verse number 17. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. We preached a little bit on this the other day or talked about it. I can't remember. I guess it was last week or the week before we talked about it in this class. I, I, I preached so many times. Around. These people are so good to put up with me, preaching and teaching as much as I do. Sometimes I have trouble keeping straight when I've said something. But we talked about how that last week, how that God had ordained that Jacob would be the one that would receive the blessing and how that Isaac, by faith, would not change 
what he had already committed when he blessed Jacob, even though he was deceived in doing it. He blessed Jacob instead of Esau because he saw the hand of God being carried out before him. And that was how he exercised faith. It was a very weak faith. It was a very pitiful example of faith, but it was faith nonetheless. Well, speaking to this fact, we're brought back to this occasion. And the Bible says he would have inherited the blessing, but he was rejected. Who rejected him? Isaac didn't reject him. Isaac wanted nothing more than to bless him. Jacob didn't reject him. It wasn't his birthright to give or blessing to give. Rebecca didn't reject him. It wasn't her blessing to give. Here's the reality. The blessing came from God through Isaac. It wasn't Isaac that rejected him. It was God that rejected him because he had already sold that birthright many years prior. He had already treated the things of God as meaningless. So God said, if you believe they're meaningless, then we won't entrust them unto you. The Bible says he sought it carefully with tears. What did he seek? It says, for he found no place of repentance, so he sought it carefully with tears. What's this talking about? This is talking about when he wept and cried unto Isaac, but Isaac said, what I've spoken, I've spoken. Here's the thing the Hebrew writer is trying to get across to us, that God has entrusted us with heavenly things. How dare we trade the earthly for the heavenly? Remember, these are first century Jews that he's writing to that are being pulled back towards Judaism. He's saying, listen, you know that's an earthly tabernacle. Those are earthly sacrifices. They mean nothing. Don't trade the heavenly birthright for a morsel of meat that you'll find in the Jewish temple. Don't trade the heavenly for the earthly. Now, let's stop and think about this very quickly. And I, and I must move on. I must hasten. But we said a moment ago that Esau would be an example of what was said in verse 15. Remember what was said in verse 15. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Something interesting happened on that day. Esau, when he saw he would not get the blessing, the Bible says he hated his brother in his heart, and he determined that after Isaac died, he would kill Jacob. Bitterness sprung up in his heart that day. Now somebody, if you're a Bible student, is probably going to say, well, wait a minute, preacher. Esau forgave him. Later on, Jacob, of course, after the brook of, uh, of Peniel, he, he, he goes and he, and he meets him after he'd wrestled with God. And he meets Esau and he thinks Esau's going to kill him, but Esau doesn't. He puts his arms around him and he hugs his neck and he forgives him. Didn't everything work out well? Not exactly. You see, for long years in between that point and the point at which he met Jacob at the brook of Peniel, Esau had kids. And no doubt he talked about what their wicked, evil, cunning deceptive Uncle Jacob had done to him. We know this is true because there was a bitterness that implanted itself in the family of Esau. You see, if you'll study your Bible, you'll find out that there's a group of people later on in your Bible that are called Edomites. And Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And there's this constant conflict between Edomites and Israelites. Insomuch that the Bible describes down in, I believe it's the book of, uh, of Obadiah, that after the Babylonians fell on the children of Israel and uh, began to carry some of them away there in Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar fell on the, the, uh, the city of Jerusalem, that whenever the Israelites fled and tried to run for the hills, that the Edomites would stand out and lay wait for them and, and fall upon them and capture them and hold them until the Babylonians got there, not for gold, not for power, not for position, but just because they hated Israelites. Teaches us this truth. Esau got over it, but his kids never got over it. And their kids never got over it, and their kids never got over it. A root of bitterness sprung up 
and thereby many were be were defiled. You know what I've seen time and again, and I say this with broken heart. I've seen families get out, and I've seen their kids go in the gutter, and then I've seen families come back and their kids stay in the gutter. I've seen it happen time and time. I have one family in particular in my mind right now that years ago was coming here. I hadn't been pastoring very long. Had a beautiful teenage girl that loved the Lord, was learning how to play the piano. Some of you all even know as I describe, and I'm not ashamed to describe this. In fact, this mama's back in church. She testified to what I'm saying. She's not back here, but she's back at another church, and she testified to this herself. Beautiful teenage girl that played the piano, loved God. I'm talking about a real heart for God. And the mama got upset and got out, stayed out, went crazy. You know, just started acting like a teenager, hanging around crazy folks, getting into stuff that every adult ought to know better than to do. Well, today that mama's got back in church. But that, that teenage girl, she's out. And she ain't just out, she's way out. You may get it right, but that don't mean all the people that have seen you get it wrong will get it right. A root of bitterness springing up and thereby many... Be defiled. Look at verse number 18. We see not only uh, in this passage a stringent command, but we see a striking contrast. The Bible says in verse number 18, gives us an illustration in verse 18 through 21 about the Old Testament scene of Sinai. And the Old Covenant made distance imperative. Now, remember, this is this whole lesson ain't about Esau. I know we spent some time on Esau, but the whole thing ain't about Esau. He's been conveying to them that our, our actions have consequences and that we're called to walk unto holiness. And one of the things he uses to illustrate this is the closeness which we can have to God today. And he points to the Old Testament covenant ratified at Sinai, and he reminds them that the Old Covenant made distance an imperative thing that was necessary. He says in verse 18, For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now I'm going to summarize this so we can run a red light and make up a little time. If you were to go back to Sinai, you would find that when God sat down with his throne on Sinai, all the things that were described there took place. The earthquake, there was thunder, there was lightnings. Actually, a very uh, uh, fascinating thing. You ought to compare Ezekiel chapter 1 and then every other time that God sat down on earth, and you'll see some similarities. I believe the thunder was the angels flying about, the noise of their wings. I believe the lightning was the fire that Ezekiel saw enfolding itself. And Anyway, the uh, you'll find that... All these things that accompanied the presence of God at Sinai. And it was so terrifying that the children of Israel begged that the voice wouldn't speak anymore. And whenever they drew back from that voice, God gave a command that they were to not come any closer unto the mountain. That if they broke through the camp and touched that mountain, that the judgment of God would fall upon them and they were commanded to either be thrust through with a dart, meaning a spear, or they were to be stoned to death. And it was so terrifying that not just the people, but even Moses himself quaked and feared whenever he saw this take place. In other words, he's saying this, this is what you could be coming to. This is how Judaism approaches unto God. That's what he's saying. You want to go back to Judaism. Well, that's the mountain that Judaism approached unto. That was what God looked like in the Old Testament to the Old Testament Jew. But then I want you to notice 
uh, not only the uh, exhortation that's given there, but notice, uh, and we, we've skipped quite a bit here, he talks about what the danger of insulting God's person a little bit further on down. But uh, he points to the fact that the covenant made distance imperative, but he points to the new covenant in verse number uh, 22 through 24. He says, you're not come to that. But this is what you are come unto. And we're going to try to just move through this very quickly. The Bible says, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now, let's pause and say a word about this. This is not talking about prospectively in the future. It doesn't say ye will come unto Mount Zion. What the Hebrew writer is talking about here is the positional relationship we have to God presently speaking. You know, Paul talked about in the book of Ephesians, he said, we're seated together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And what he's doing is he's laying beside the Old Testament to the New Testament, the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. He's saying in the Old Covenant, God was a fearful God, and you couldn't approach unto him. But in the New Covenant, we positionally are seated in heaven with Christ. And he says, this is what you're come unto. He says, you're come unto Mount Zion. This speaks of security. Zion, of course, was the heart of uh, Jerusalem, and it was there that David's citadel was positioned. Zion was the stronghold of that entire region. Even to this day, you'll hear people talk about Zion in those terms. Notice not only the security that's mentioned, but notice the society that's mentioned. You're come unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, you're, you're not, as it were, a tent-dwelling people in your religion, so to speak, but now you're coming to a fixed position. Uh, in the Old Testament, they were called unto a land. In the New Testament, we're called unto a city. We're called unto that heavenly Jerusalem. Then notice the servants that are mentioned, and to an innumerable company, innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly. Now, the commentator believes when it says general assembly, uh, that it's talking about the angels and not talking about believers. I don't know if I agree with that or not, but I know certainly the angels are mentioned there. Uh, the Bible tells us and teaches us that the angels in heaven pay attention to what's going on in earth, that uh, when a sinner is saved, that all of heaven rejoices. In other words, we're coming, when we approach unto God as a worshiper today, we're coming to a place where even the angels of heaven rejoice and give praise and honor and glory unto God. And then notice the sons that are mentioned. We come to the church of the firstborn. Now, I'll tell you what I believe, and you might agree or you might disagree with this. Um, I don't believe in the idea of a universal church, because the idea of a universal church implies that everybody's a part of it. Nor do I believe that, that uh, there is any means or mechanism whereby man uh, interacts with God on this earth other than the local church. I believe in the local church. But I think it would be folly to believe that the only thing that exists in God's economy is just a local church. Certainly, we are knit together with other believers, regardless of what church they may be a part of. And I believe that this is what it's speaking about when it says the church of the firstborn. Has it ever dawned on you? And one uh, fellow illustrated this way. He said he was, uh, just after he had lost his mother, he, was, uh, he went into his prayer closet and he was getting ready to pray. And he went to call out his mother's name in prayer. And all of a sudden, he was struck with sorrow as he was reminded that she was no longer here on earth. She was in heaven. And uh, he said he, he was kind of sad. He thought about all the times when he had prayed for her and times he should have, he hadn't. And his heart was broken. And uh, he was talking about that to his wife. And he said, well, don't you realize, though you can't praise God or though you cannot pray to God for her, you can praise God with her. She's seated in heaven right now praising God. And we from earth can praise God. 
I'm not saying there's no difference between heaven and earth. I'm not saying there's no difference between the presence of God there and the local church here. But I am saying this, that there's a cooperation between the work God is doing here and the work that's finished in heaven. And that when we approach unto God as a worshiper, we're worshiping Him with saints that are on earth worshiping Him, but we're also worshiping Him with those saints who have gone on to glory and are worshiping Him right now as well. What a beautiful thought that even now we can still have church with our loved ones that have gone home to be with the Lord. We're come to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Now, what does all this mean? Why is he saying this? He's saying this to welcome us into the presence of God. He's saying, listen, follow after holiness, because when you mess up, we come not to the mountain that shakes and quakes with fire and blackness and darkness, but we come to Mount Zion. And we come to a place, and he speaks not only of the plane in which believers now live, but the presence in which believers now live. He says this, we come to what? We come to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprink, of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, isn't it interesting that we, should, we can worship God not just as our Savior, not just as our Master, not just as our Lord, but we can worship Him as judge of all? It implies that we have been justified. It implies that we can stand whole before God. And one fellow put it this way, that we bask in the presence of Him, from whose face one day heaven and earth will flee away. That's how justified we are in the eyes of God. Why can we do this? Well, two reasons. One, we come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Were we to be able to open the windows of heaven, there we'd see Jesus on the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. What a welcome sight to those first century Jews that had been used to being kept at a distance from God. Now they're told, come into God's presence for there's one that makes intercession. And then we see uh, his finished work is spoken of into the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Again, I want to remind you that sprinkling in your Bible uh, never denotes the idea of baptism. There's not one instance in the Bible of anybody being baptized by sprinkling ever, not one instance of it even remotely. But sprinkling does denote the idea of consecration and sanctification. The, uh, the Old Testament temple and tabernacle were sanctified by the sprinkling of blood. The book of the law was sanctified by the sprinkling of the blood. And then the people were sanctified by the sprinkling of the blood. And sprinkling in your Bible most of the time relates to the idea of us being able to approach unto God with a clear conscience. In other words, we can approach unto Him because the blood of Christ has been applied on our behalf and uh, our conscience has been purged from dead works to serve the living God. I want you to notice this stirring conclusion, and we're just going to basically read through it and be done. There is an appeal that's given in verse 25. In light of all this, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. <clears throat> Remember that the book of Hebrews begins by saying, God hath spoken. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in old times by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. God hath spoken was the theme of the first two verses of the book of Hebrews. And now coming full circle in chapter 12, he says, He's spoken, so see that you refuse not him that hath spoken. <clears throat> and he gives an example of why this is so important. And he goes back there again to Mount Sinai. And he says this, For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. What's he talking about? 
He's saying, don't you realize that at Mount Sinai, those that disobeyed God's command and rushed forth to the mountain, that God spoke in judgment and His judgment fell upon them. This same God doesn't speak from the mountain now. He speaks from heaven. And He speaks saying, I won't just shake earth, I'll shake heaven also. Now, here's a little insight to explain a little more of that, verse 27. And this word, yet once more, don't you love it when the Bible is a commentary on the Bible? And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. One of these days, God is going to speak again in judgment at the great white throne judgment. And you know, the Bible says that at that moment, that's when heaven and earth are going to be renovated. The Bible says the, the last time that you see heaven and earth mentioned there is when the Bible says, from whose face heaven and earth fled away. It's the last time you see the present heaven and earth mentioned. The next time heaven and earth is mentioned is in chapter 21 when John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So at the great white throne judgment, God is going to speak again in judgment. And when He does, He's not just going to shake the earth, but He's going to shake the heavens. In other words, there's going to be nothing left except those things that are not founded upon that which is temporal, those things that can be shaken, but the things that cannot be shaken. Those are what's going to remain. And it's a, a, a we might say, a very eloquent way of the Hebrews writer saying, listen, there's coming a day when God's going to burn up everything that's temporal, and only what's spiritual is going to be left. Do you want to have your future vested in the temple that's going to burn up, the tabernacle that's burned up, Judaism that'll burn up? Or do you want to have your spiritual well-being vested in the righteousness of Christ and in the coming kingdom of Christ, which cannot be shaken? Then notice the application of this, verse 28, 29, we're done. The Bible says, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved... <laughs> In other words, we're looking heavenward. We're not looking towards earth. Let us what? Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. In light of this fact, he says we are to have three things happen. Number one, we're to be moved by glorious fact. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So we ought to invest in that. Not in earthly temporal things but in heavenly things. We're to be moved by God's gracious favor. Let us have grace. God's bestowed grace to us, so let us walk in that grace and walk in the spiritual strength of God. And we are to be moved by godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. One day this world is going to burn up. What have we invested our time and energy in? Is it going to be in things that are going to burn up? Is it going to be in those weights which we've let hang around our ankles? And weigh us down, or will we have thrown those things off and ran with fervor and patience towards the heavenly goal line? Will we have walked with God and invested in heavenly things? I, I, I trust you will, and I, I trust I will as well.